Letter 25 My dear Wormwood, The real trouble about the set your patient is living in is that it is merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and psychical research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. Substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. Work on their horror of the same old thing. The horror of the same old thing is one of the most valuable passions we have produced in the human heart. An endless source of heresies in religion, folly in counsel, infidelity in marriage, and inconstancy in friendship. The humans live in time and experience reality successively. To experience much of it, therefore, they must experience many different things. In other words, they must experience change. And since they need change, the enemy, being a hedonist at heart, has made change pleasurable to them, just as he has made eating pleasurable. But since he does not wish them to make change any more than eating, an end in itself, he has balanced the love of change in them by a love of permanence. He has contrived to gratify both tastes together on the very world he has made, by that union of change and permanence which we call rhythm. He gives them the seasons, each season different yet every year the same, so that spring is always felt as a novelty yet always as the recurrence of an immemorial theme. He gives them in his church a spiritual year. They change from a fast to a feast, but it is the same feast as before. Now just as we pick out and exaggerate the pleasure of eating to produce gluttony, so we pick out this natural pleasantness of change and twist it into a demand for absolute novelty. This demand is entirely our workmanship. If we neglect our duty, men will be not only contented but transported by the mixed novelty and familiarity of snowdrops this January, sunrise this morning, plum pudding this Christmas. Children, until we have taught them better, will be perfectly happy with a seasonal round of games in which conquerors exceed hopscotch as regularly as autumn follows summer. Only by our incessant efforts is the demand for infinite or unrhythmical change kept up. This demand is valuable in various ways. In the first place, it diminishes pleasure while increasing desire. The pleasure of novelty is by its very nature more subject than any other to the law of diminishing returns. And continued novelty costs money, so that the desire for it spells avarice or unhappiness, or both. And again, the more rapacious this desire, the sooner it must eat up all the innocent sources of pleasure and pass on to those the enemy forbids. Thus, by inflaming the horror of the same old thing, we have recently made the arts, for example, less dangerous to us than perhaps they have ever been. Lowbrow and highbrow artists alike being now daily drawn into fresh and still fresh excesses of lasciviousness, unreason, cruelty, and pride. Finally, the desire for novelty is indispensable if we are to produce fashions or vogues. The use of fashions and thought is to distract the attention of men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is least in danger, and fix its approval on the virtue nearest to that vice which we are trying to make endemic. The game is to have them running about with fire extinguishers whenever there is a flood, and all crowding to that side of the boat which is already nearly gunwale under. Thus we make it fashionable to expose the dangers of enthusiasm at the very moment when they are all really becoming worldly and lukewarm. A century later, when we are really making them all Byronic and drunk with emotion, the fashionable outcry is directed against the dangers of the mere understanding. Cruel ages are put on their guard against sentimentality, feckless and idle ones against respectability, lecherous ones against puritanism. 
And whenever all men are really hastening to be slaves or tyrants, we make liberalism the prime boogie. But the greatest triumph of all is to elevate his horror of the same old thing into a philosophy, so that nonsense in the intellect may reinforce corruption in the will. It is here that the general evolutionary or historical character of modern European thought, partly our work, comes in so useful. The enemy loves platitudes. Of a proposed course of action he wants men, so far as I can see, to ask very simple questions. Is it righteous? Is it prudent? Is it possible? Now if we can keep men asking, is it in accordance with the general movement of our time? Is it progressive or reactionary? Is this the way that history is going? They will neglect the relevant questions. And the questions they do ask are, of course, unanswerable, for they do not know the future, and what the future will be depends very largely on just those choices which they now invoke the future to help them to make. As a result, while their minds are buzzing in this vacuum, we have the better chance to slip in and bend them to the action we have decided on. And great work has already been done. Once, they knew that some changes were for the better, others for the worse, and others again indifferent. We have largely removed this knowledge. For the descriptive adjective unchanged, we have substituted the emotional adjective stagnant. We have trained them to think of the future as a promised land which favored heroes attain, not as something which everyone reaches at the rate of 60 minutes an hour, whatever he does, whoever he is. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Letter 26 My dear Wormwood, Yes, courtship is the time for sowing those seeds which will grow up ten years later into domestic hatred. The enchantment of unsatisfied desire produces results which the humans can be made to mistake for the results of charity. Avail yourself of the ambiguity in the word love. Let them think they have solved by love problems they have in fact only waived or postponed under the influence of the enchantment. While it lasts, you have the chance to foment the problems in secret and render them chronic. The grand problem is that of unselfishness. Note once again the admirable work of our philological arm in substituting the negative unselfishness for the enemy's positive charity. Thanks to this, you can, from the very outset, teach a man to surrender benefits, not that others may be happy in having them, but that he may be unselfish in foregoing them. That is a great point gained. Another great help, where the parties concerned are male and female, is the divergence of view about unselfishness which we have built up between the sexes. A woman means by unselfishness chiefly taking trouble for others. A man means not giving trouble to others. As a result, a woman who is quite far gone in the enemy's service will make a nuisance of herself on a larger scale than any man except those whom our father has dominated completely. And conversely, a man will live long in the enemy's camp before he undertakes as much spontaneous work to please others as a quite ordinary woman may do every day. Thus, while the woman thinks of doing good offices and the man of respecting other people's rights, each sex, without any obvious unreason, can and does regard the other as radically selfish. On top of these confusions, you can now introduce a few more. The erotic enchantment produces a mutual complacence in which each is really pleased to give in to the wishes of the other. They also know that the enemy demands of them a degree of charity which, if attained, would result in similar actions. You must make them establish as a law for their whole married life that degree of mutual self-sacrifice which is at present sprouting naturally out of the enchantment, but which, when the enchantment dies away, they will not have charity enough to enable them to perform. They will not see the trap, since they are under the double blindness of mistaking sexual excitement for charity and of thinking that the excitement will last. 
When once a sort of official, legal, or nominal unselfishness has been established as a rule, a rule for the keeping of which their emotional resources have died away and their spiritual resources have not yet grown, the most delightful results follow. In discussing any joint action, it becomes obligatory that A should argue in favor of B's supposed wishes and against his own, while B does the opposite. It is often impossible to find out either party's real wishes. With luck, they end up by doing something that neither wants, while each feels a glow of self-righteousness and harbors a secret claim to preferential treatment for the unselfishness shown and a secret grudge against the other for the ease with which the sacrifice has been accepted. Later on, you can venture on what may be called the generous conflict illusion. This game is best played with more than two players in a family with grown-up children, for example. Something quite trivial like having tea in the garden is proposed. One member takes care to make it quite clear, though not in so many words, that he would rather not, but is, of course, prepared to do so out of unselfishness. The others instantly withdraw their proposal, ostensibly through their unselfishness, but really because they don't want to be used as a sort of lay figure on which the first speaker practices petty altruisms. But he is not going to be done out of his debauch of unselfishness either. He insists on doing what the others want. They insist on doing what he wants. Passions are roused. Soon someone is saying, very well, then I won't have any tea at all. And a real quarrel ensues with bitter resentment on both sides. You see how it is done? If each side had been frankly contending for its own real wish, they would all have kept within the bounds of reason and courtesy. But just because the contention is reversed and each side is fighting the other side's battle, all the bitterness which really flows from thwarted self-righteousness and obstinacy and the accumulated grudges of the last ten years is concealed from them by the nominal or official unselfishness of what they are doing or at least held to be excused by it. Each side is indeed quite alive to the chief quality of the adversary's unselfishness and of the false position into which he is trying to force them, but each manages to feel blameless and ill-used itself, with no more dishonesty than comes natural to a human. A sensible human once said, If people knew how much ill-feeling unselfishness occasions, it would not be so often recommended from the pulpit. And again, she's the sort of woman who lives for others. You can always tell the others by their hunted expression. All this can be begun even in the period of courtship. A little real selfishness on your patient's part is often of less value in the long run for securing his soul than the first beginnings of that elaborate and self-conscious unselfishness which may one day blossom into the sort of thing I have described. Some degree of mutual falseness, some surprise that the girl does not always notice just how unselfish he is being, can be smuggled in already. Cherish these things, and above all, don't let the young fools notice them. If they notice them, they will be on the road to discovering that love is not enough, that charity is needed and not yet achieved, and that no external law can supply its place. I wish Slum Trimpet could do something about undermining that young woman's sense of the ridiculous. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape.